What's up? Welcome to Same Same But Tech, a podcast where we explain how technology is driving culture into the future, one analogy at a time. I'm Mohan, and this is a pretty bittersweet episode of Same Same But Tech. It's the season two wrap-up show. Suddenly, I'm kind of sad. Is season two over already? It's been a long road, a deep dive, as they say. And along the way, we've gathered all the juicy nuggets of tech innovation we could mine. The culture shifting, paradigm altering, reality bending amazingness found in this season was literally out of this world at times. And the stories I'm still salivating over all the amazing people we met along the path, pushing boundaries and doing the coolest we never thought could be possible. Though, I think most of all, I'm going to miss the sound effects. There were so many sound effects. (laughs) Hang on, I have an idea. Let's extend season two just a little teeny tiny bit longer. We can relive some of the best moments together. You, me, right now. Let's take it from the very top. Roll the clocks back all the way to April. A crisp spring day. Or it was hot. I don't remember. Anyways, episode one, plant-based burgers are like Teslas. Our guest Dana Worth told us about flying around the country with suitcases filled with meat or like fake meat, impossible meat. We would fly with these gigantic suitcases um, full of uh, full of frozen burgers. So those are your those are your carry-ons in the airport in the airplane. Yeah, we well we would check them. These are like enormous, you know. Imagine you're going away for months, type suitcase, and it was just filled with with frozen burgers. Dana led the team who convinced Burger King, the literal kings of meat, quick service royalty, to combine the all powerful Whopper with their own plant based creation called the Impossible Burger. He started small, testing out the recipe in kitchen after kitchen after kitchen. <laughs> risking condemnation from the most prestigious of chefs to take a chance on a meatless burger. I'd say within the first five to 10 seconds, you know whether this is going to be a good meeting or not. First thing you got to do is convince this person that this is not just some crazy veggie burger from from San Francisco and that they should put it on their grill. Like there were people we walked in and they they wouldn't even let us put it on the grill. There were a few who... uh, told me to go back to California and get my hippie burger out of their kitchen. Thanks to Dana, plant-based meat turned into a pretty big thing. How do I know that? Because one of our experts in that episode, Poe Bronson, he told me so. The plant-based meat sector's closest analogy is electric cars. And while as electric cars have come along and everyone's known, we need to save the climate at some point here. But we don't want to drive around in a crappy, junky, slow vehicle either. In the food sector, where everyday consumers were like, what can I do about climate change? 
what can I do? I eat three times a day. And by making this choice three times a day in what we consume, we could actually have a personal small impact on our planet. Just like we kind of needed the Tesla, a faster, better car that also happens to be electric. In episode two, we tried to define art, which was always a bad idea because that's like trying to describe a color, like what is orange? Anyway, we met Hugo Cassel-Dupre, part of a team of developers in Paris at a collective called Obvious. Obvious programmed a generative adversarial network of computers called a GAN, and trained it to create original art. A computer creating original art. You heard me right. And we traced the story of how their work became the first piece of AI-fueled artwork to be auctioned off at the venerable Christie's Auction House. Hugo and his buddies made a lot of money, like a lot. But as first-time stunters, their rapid success brought on a big old bowl of self-doubt. Have you ever heard of imposter syndrome? Like uh, what it is to be an artist? Are we really going to do that? Because we don't have like any proper art background, even though we are really, uh, uh, we consider ourselves a creative people. So it was like a big question, like uh, can we consider ourselves of, uh, as artists if we, if, we, uh, if we get into that? What are the consequences, the, the consequences of using AI to create art? What are the consequences of having an AI create art? Are AI art critics coming for us next? Too soon to tell, but more importantly, how do you even program an AI to make art? We asked Dr. Ahmed El-Gamal, a computer science professor and founder of the Art and Artificial Intelligence Lab at Rutgers University to break it down and build it back up for us. Suppose you want to take a photo of a bird uh, on a tree. You know how hard is it to zoom in to capture it on a tree and, and it's very difficult. Instead, imagine you have a camera that you can feed it lots of images of birds and it will just uh, generate a new image of a bird uh, for you. A novel image, not just a repetition of what you give it, but a novel image of a bird. Suppose the camera it can just tell it, give me an image of a bluebird with a yellow beak on a tree with a snow background. Just write text and it will give me a picture of that. Dr. El-Gamal said that making generative art is like using a camera in the 1850s. At that point, people were also freaked out about a machine that could produce an art piece. Just back then, the scandalous development was the photograph. Hugo and the team at Obvious were pioneers, just like our next guest. A man determined to get himself into outer space by any means necessary. And to hear him tell it, it was pretty rough in the early days of that journey. I know the exact moment where I decided I wanted to go to space. And that was when I was about 13 years old and the NASA doctors told me that because I needed glasses, that I was no longer eligible to be a NASA astronaut. And so it was sort of like getting kicked out of the club that every adult you knew was a member of before you ever got a chance to join. That's from episode three. Space tourism is like scuba diving. And that man was Richard Garriott, 
after years of struggle and many, many setbacks, he became one of the first Earthlings who self-funded a private flight up into orbit. And here's the kicker. After years of NASA saying no to his dream, Richard had the idea of going to Russia and paying them to take him up. There's only two countries, they're not even companies, there's two vehicles on the planet that can go to space. And one is the shuttle. We were told no by NASA repeatedly. We still get told no by NASA a lot. But uh, uh, we said, you know, we never really asked Russia. That worked. Привет. Для нашего американского друга. Пять, четыре, три, два, один. Лифтов. Raphael Rotkin, an investor in space travel and tech, was on board to explain why we all should take that big ride and how it'll affect our perceptions of this big blue rock that we call home. So I think there's something in the human condition and human nature that urges us to explore, and space tourism is going to tap right into that. If you're going to watch Google Earth for an hour and a half to watch it go around once, you'd be bored within 10 minutes and put it away. But... When the view is the real Earth scrolling around below you, it is amazingly captivated. Captivating. Oh, hey, I was listening to my friend Axel Monsoor's new EP called I Hadn't Ever Loved Myself. Check it out on Spotify. Axel is the star of episode four. Social audio is like a buffet for your ears. He also became a big deal on Clubhouse and helped drive the popularity of social audio this past winter. We're expecting social audio to get bigger as more platforms get into it. But the hypest moment for Axel on Clubhouse was when his idol, John Mayer, dropped into his Clubhouse room called the Lullaby Club. And so I was sleeping in and I get these frantic calls and I see like five missed calls from Steph Simon. And she's like, get into lullaby club now. <laughs> and I get in and as, and I'm bleary eyed, you know, I still have like my morning voice. My eyes are crusty. Like I'm like not awake. And then I'm there for maybe two minutes and I just see that little green bar appear at the top of the phone. It just says, John Mayer has entered the room. Silicon Valley analyst Jeremiah Oyang was also in the room with us for that episode to give some crucial context on social audio's evolution compared with all the other social medias we love <laughs> and love to hate. What, one of the key things that really has set this market apart from other types of social networks is we call this the Goldilocks medium. It's not too much, not too little in, in terms of too much video or too little of what is text. You don't get that emotion out. So it's really sitting in the right uh, medium. Season two of Same Same was relatively straightforward up until then. AI art, plant-based meat, all conceivable future stuff. Then, with episode five, virtual beings are like a mockumentary. Things got a little strange more than a little strange. We looked at the world through the eyes of a virtual being, a pop star called Little Michaela. She has 3 million Instagram followers. Her mother, uh, I mean, creator, manager, 
Nicole Diora is incredibly proud of Michaela's accomplishments and will readily list them out for you. She has been in Time Magazine's 25 Most Influential People on the Internet. She has gone from Carnival in Brazil, where she danced on top of a float with her friend Pablo Vitar, to Paris Fashion Week, where she did the step and repeat for Givenchy. She has been in the huge Samsung campaign. While she's not real, she kind of is, sort of. And if you're wondering, yes, Gen Z kids are all about surfing that virtual being wavelength. Little Michaela is a whole entire vibe. Anyway, how do you create a virtual being? Edward Saatchi, our expert and CEO and founder of Fable Studio, explained it all. Think through a Bible for the character of who the character is. What's like the kind of way in which they talk, what do they look like, all the rest. And then we think through like what's going to happen to them over the course of the year on like a monthly basis. And then the wizard engine, which is the AI tool that we've created, generates all of the dialogue in between. This year, the NFT got its big break, but WTF is an NFT. (laughs) How do you make one and why are they worth so much? All of these questions and more were answered in episode six. NFTs are like trading cards. They become the new killer application of the blockchain aka the future of everything technology you've definitely heard about at a happy hour. To get the full scoop, we talked to Roham Garagoslu, CEO of Dapper Labs and creator of NBA Top Shot, a basketball-focused NFT marketplace. NBA Top Shots is like trading cards, but but digital. And so just like you open packs of digital cards and video games, here you can actually keep the cards and sell them and, and transfer them to your friends or destroy them if you want to. So the best way to understand is NFTs make it possible to have the same kind of property rights and ownership and control over uh, assets that you, you, you sort of take for granted in the physical world to have it in the digital world. That is the essence of NFTs. They're like a digital collectible, a trading card, a piece of art, pretty much anything you can think of, but digital. David Finzer, CEO of OpenSea, brought us the 101 on the crypto economics of it all. To explain the difference between fungible and non-fungible, fungible means that uh, the asset is interchangeable with another one. So for example, the US dollar is fungible because doesn't matter whether I have this US dollar or that US dollar. It's just a US dollar, right? Um, you can kind of add them together. So cryptocurrencies like Ethereum, Bitcoin, Dogecoin, these types of things, they're all fungible because it doesn't matter whether this Ethereum or that Ethereum, right? And non-fungible just means that each one is distinct. Do you know what a deep fake is? I do because I am one. Was that my deep fake? It sure sounded like me, but it's hard to trust for sure. Maybe it was me. Maybe it wasn't me. (laughs) That was the same idea behind our deepfake episode number seven. Deepfakes are like Hollywood body doubles. My deepfake double took over and recorded the entire episode. I was blissfully unaware at the time, but I heard that my deepfake interviewed the inventor of a brilliant audio clone app called Liarbird. 
When they launched, the Lyrebird founders wanted to make a splash. So they deep-faked a conversation between three famous politicians. So we were like, who are the people that people are going to notice the most? Just make sure that we do it in a way that is not harmful. And we just said that Trump, Obama, and and Hillary will be the probably a good, we can have a good conversation between three of them. Deepfakes are everywhere now. This is not the Queen of England. Trust in what is genuine and what is not. And this is not Barack Obama. How about this? Simply, President Trump is a total and complete dip. We needed help to explain where all of this fakery was heading. So we turned to some super smart researchers at MIT. On the positive side, uh, deep fakes are, of course, used a lot in entertainment and movies. For example, make uh, an actor younger, like Robert in the movie The Irishman. Uh, sometimes when an actor or actress has uh, passed away, they need to uh, create some, some fake footage, basically, of that same actor or actress to complete a movie that was done um, in the Star Wars movie Rogue One for Princess Leia. Technology is always in the arm race, right? There are people that want to use it for positive application and people that want to, you know, use it for malicious uh, application or, 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 you know, try to use it to, to do bad things to society. And finally, drumroll, please. Our last episode of the season, startups are like cooking without a recipe. This was some ice-cold motivation to go big or to go home straight into my veins. We told the story of a unicorn, Reef Technologies, a startup that pivoted from parking spaces to ghost kitchens, reinventing the urban logistics landscape along the way. Co-founder Philippe St. Just described some of the tools in the toolkit available to startup founders today. The, the thing I think that is interesting to look back on is, is the evolution of the internet and the digital startups. I grew up in the 90s, and, and so I've seen kind of the, the evolution of, of websites. And, uh, you know, it used to be that you had to, uh, you had to set up your own servers. You had to, uh, to learn how to code stuff from scratch in order to, to build a website. As the internet has gotten more sophisticated, what really appeared was this ecosystem of tools and components and infrastructure that allowed creators to really build on the shoulder of giants in order to manifest their vision. Brad Feld was our expert for this one. You know, the legendary startup maestro behind Techstars and the Foundry Group. He waxed eloquent on how startup culture works and explained how founders can help each other instead of competing. The goal of the startup community is to help entrepreneurs succeed. Now, many of the actors in the startup community are entrepreneurs. So they have to have a mindset that they're not playing a zero-sum game with each other. They're playing a positive-sum game. They put energy in without knowing what they're going to get back. It's not altruism. They expect to get something back, but they don't know when, from whom, over what time period, and what magnitude, and what consideration. If I help you, you help me, we help each other, the pie gets bigger, the activity gets better. When we look forward 30, 40, 50 years from now, as I ask all our illustrious guests, the world is going to be hella different. And our friends have all given varying thoughts of what they think our future is going to look like. 
Here's the thing, though. Their opinions are well-informed, sure, and all expert-like, yeah. After all, we only bring you the best of the best on this podcast. But my broader point and the only takeaway I care about, my dear listeners, is that the future's actually not written yet. We're making it happen every day. It's up to us to make it work so that one day we may soar among the stars or at least realize our wildest futurist dreams. And I'd like to think that after each episode, we were able to go forth with a little bit more insight into what that world is that we are building and hopefully had a lot of fun along the way. Man, (laughs) I can't believe it. We are at the final, final, final credits. I guess I'll let my deep fake do it. We're friends now. Today's episode was hosted by me, Mahon M. Zanuzi. Produced by Kareen Javier and Lee Schneider. Written by Ibrahim Balki. Exec produced by Steph Wolf. Music by Uvra. You can find more Same Same on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your ear candy. Thanks for listening. Spread love. This episode was brought to you in part by BCG Digital Ventures. BCGDV builds revolutionary new businesses with the world's most influential corporations. Learn more at bcgdv.com. Is that it? Are we done recording? Yeah, we're done recording. I hit stop. I never liked how the deepfake said, Oovra. Um, I could try to fix that if you give me more time.